What's going on and welcome back to another episode of the White Tail Bloodline Podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Sodders, and to say I'm jacked and fired up for you guys to hear this episode is an understatement. We got the one and only Jared Mills on this episode, man. Part of the Midwest Whitetail. Personally, one of my favorite guys in the industry and one of my favorite shows. So we are fired up to record this one with him. I got John Boyd, the Kansas King, once again as my trusty co-host. But we talk a lot in this episode. I don't want to ramble on too much. There's a lot of different topics we cover. We're just picking his brain, man, because we've been watching his videos and falling with what he's doing. So we're really excited to just chat with him and talk some whitetails. But in part of this, just like it goes, recording some of these podcasts, trying to go state to state. It's a little funky in a couple parts, but you definitely don't want to skip it. We cover a lot of great things in this episode. Don't want to miss it. So without further ado, I'm going to get John Boy and Jared on the phone and let's get to it. What's going on, Jared? Hey, guys. You hear me all right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Awesome. Well, How are we doing? We're doing good, man. Excited for this one. Good. Me too. And uh, just so you know, voices, I know you've been texting John, but I'm Gavin Sauters. And then uh, we got the farm boy, John, on the other end. I'm John, everybody. Perfect. Excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, me too, man. Been uh, watching you for many, many years. Like, I dabble in a lot of videos on YouTube and stuff, uh, just looking throughout different stuff. If something piques my interest, I'll look at it. But you're, uh, I always like your videos, and I always like Midwest Whitetail videos, so I'm very, very excited for this one. Uh, we got some questions to ask you. Should be pretty easy talking whitetails, man. That's what we love doing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the, appreciate the support and comments, and, yeah, feel free to ask anything you want. I'd be happy to talk about uh, anything you guys want to know about. Sounds good. So I uh, figure we just get a little background if somebody's living under a rock or something, don't know who you are, and uh, just like how you got into hunting, where you're from, and uh, maybe your journey from how you started in the industry uh, or heading into the industry, I should say, and to where you're at in Midwest Whitetail and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, some of my earliest memories of hunting, if I think all the way back, uh, were with my dad and grandpa. And their their big thing wasn't necessarily hunting as far as their love for the outdoors, but it was trapping. And so, like I said, some of my earliest memories – were running trap lines with my grandpa and my dad uh just the excitement of that and the, the anticipation of seeing what we caught each morning and the whole process of of skinning and selling furs and and all that i got my start in the in the outdoors um they did some hunting more small game stuff rabbits squirrels and pheasants um of course i got into that too but you know like all of us i think i started venturing out on my own a little bit just figuring it out and you know it's funny looking back on that um just how how important those days were i think you know we get ate up in and everything we do as passionate as we are and now it's this year-round thing but how important those early days were for our love for the outdoors just figuring things out developing that woodsmanship um it's cool just even talking about with you guys just reflecting back on that um just knowing where where it came from and so i I really started developing my love for hunting specifically a lot more and i got to do it a little bit backwards than a lot of guys um i was kind of self-taught on the bow hunting side my dad and, and grandpa never really did that but i got to do it backwards and and get my dad into bow hunting eventually and, uh, you know, be around him when he got his first deer with a bow. 
That's uh, awesome. So that, that was a really cool experience for me. Um, definitely something that, that I won't ever forget. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really where the, the start and the, and the outdoors and, and hunting was for me. Actually, growing up, I was bigger into fishing than I was hunting. Even like towards the beginning of college, uh, you know, that late in my life, I was still, my dream was to become a professional angler. Actually, I was ate up with bass fishing. I watched tournaments all the time. Really? Um, I would have never guessed that, Joe. Yeah, man, I was, I, I had some cool stories of being in college and, um, I was, I played baseball in college. So I always had athlete roommates and stuff and just, we would just being competitive and stuff. We'd go find like some lakes and rent a couple little John boats and do our own little, uh, bass tournaments for fun. And we'd, we'd run like little Bassmaster classic pools, uh, every February <laughs> when it was on, I mean, we, we were eight up or at least I was eight up and kind of got them into it. But, but then the bow hunting really bit me. And now if I, if I get out bass fishing, two times a year I'm doing pretty good so it, it, it's it's changed a lot but um you know I'll, I've always been obsessed with the outdoors which is probably no surprise um but yeah there's it, it's cool to look back on that as far as the hunting industry side I mentioned I was going to school and playing baseball I was down in St. Louis and so being from Iowa I didn't really have ground to hunt in Missouri and I was busy as a student athlete uh anyway so i didn't get a lot of time to spend in the woods um so i kind of was forced to watch videos and stuff to kind of scratch that hunting itch and midwest whitetail was in its infancy days at that point was one that i discovered and watched quite a bit and when i was getting close to, to graduating i had reached out to to bill winky and just want to know if there's any opportunities any type of internship program i had done a number of different internships throughout college i was fortunate to have a really good program that i was a part of but um he bill got back to me and said he didn't really have anything but might be able to come up with something and said you know watching drive up here to iowa and i did that we sat in his basement for a couple hours and talked about it and more or less kind of created this internship opportunity and that's kind of where it all started i was an intern for a few months for him in 2010 uh, just doing different stuff for Middle Swipe Till, filming, editing. And uh, he hired me full-time uh, a few months after that. And I worked full-time for Middle Swipe Till for about a year and a half uh, during that time frame. And then I got to the point where I, I, was, I didn't go to school for video editing or anything like that. I enjoyed it, but I, I was shortly removed from my college career. I kind of wanted to use a little more of what I just went to school for, and that was business management, you know, more or less a business degree. So I took a job with uh, the Outdoors uh, that was also located in Southern Iowa, marketing and operations for them. So I still get to be in hunting, and I, I didn't ever stop. This is kind of one of the keys to where I'm at today is I never stopped working or producing for Midwest Whitetail, even though I switched careers multiple times. You know, whatever my full-time job was, I would do that during the day, and I'd come home to my apartment and edit Midwest Whitetail for Bill, uh, basically as an independent contractor. So that continued throughout um, a number of years. I, I actually took a job uh, after Muddy 
I got to the point where this is something that's always very tough. I'm sure you've heard guys talk about before, but mixing your passion with your career is is a very delicate thing. And uh, I got, I got to the point where it was, it was tough. Like I, it was taking some of the love of hunting away for me and I wanted to try to get that back. Um, I wanted to try to keep hunting as a hobby not necessarily my career so i took a job in pharmaceutical sales and decided to keep hunting on the side but again the key was i would work pharmaceutical sales all day i'd come home and from my apartment or then house i would edit middle swipe tail um, for bill so kept doing that um for a number of years and then um finally i got tired of not having enough hunting time working outside of the of the industry and eventually got full-time back with Middles Whitetail in 2017. And um, it's changed hands a couple of times with regards to ownership over the past few years. Uh, but we now own Middles Whitetail, the brand and the, the production company, 41 North. And so that is my full-time job now, managing the production company and the Middles Whitetail brand. So kind of kind of crazy how it came full circle from coming in one of the first interns of the program the full-time job, switching careers, and back to now being a part owner of Middles Whitetail, just kind of a full circle journey of uh, being in the industry. And, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. Oh, yeah, man, that's awesome. I didn't know you were a part owner. owner. That's uh, pretty freaking awesome. Yeah. Has, has that changed a lot? Do you like? Are you enjoying that? I'm, I'm guessing you are because you get to do a lot of obviously. Yeah, it's a, I'm a small minority owner. There's there's a number of investors involved in this business, but um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's a ton of work. That's that's one of the biggest things that you know maybe people don't understand. The perception is probably a little bit different, but the the amount of behind the scenes work that goes into this business is is a lot, and that's kind of the the part that's the the trade-off right you you get to work in this industry you get to spend a lot of time in the field a lot of time hunting all that is is awesome but it doesn't come without a price you know that price is just a ton of extra hours you don't there is no such thing as basically nights or weekends or any of that i mean you just work all the time there's always stuff to be done especially if you want to keep growing there's so always people to be you know, touching base with and, and partners and deliverables and all that type of stuff. So it, it is a ton of work. I don't think as much pe- as many people realize what it takes to, to be successful in this digital world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a dream career from the standpoint of getting to be outside a lot, get to be around hunting a lot, getting to create content, all that type of stuff has, has been pretty cool. And it's evolved a lot, obviously. You guys know the hunting industry is, has evolved a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of have to you know, evolve with it. But um, there's so much opportunity in this industry, and that's that's a cool thing. I mean, you, you have to pick and choose what opportunities you want to chase down, and that's a, that's a big part of my job. But um, it feels like we're finally in a position where the opportunities are, are coming to us rather than you know having to seek out a opportunity. You're, when you're just getting started yeah i'm saying that's where we're at because i i'm the one that runs the podcast and uh, i run most of the page john does some posting and uh we're nowhere near what you are but it's it's a lot man because like i've been i worked 11 hour a day today in the hot sun got off had about an hour to mess around before two hours before we got on this podcast and 
it's just this is small time so i couldn't even imagine like the pressure and uh like how much work you guys are actually going through because you guys are producing videos basically weekly right yeah and then in the season it's multiple videos per day um essentially with with all the other productions we have and daily blogs and and all that but it's it's a similar concept as what you guys are going through it's yeah, and I, I would never want to be in a different position than this in the standpoint of it's what you put into it is what it's going to be. Like you can yep. <clears throat> you can slack off if you want, but you got to understand that your business is going to be a, a representation of that or you can chase it down as hard as you can and, and get after it. And again, it's going to it's going to play out just that way. So that's a that's the position I always want to be in. I want to be challenged. I, uh, you know, I, I, again, going back to my dad and grandpa, they instilled such a strong work ethic in me and it's, you don't know anything else, but work. I mean, earn what you can. Um, so that's, that's the position I always want to be in. I don't want to be in a position where I can clock in at, at eight or nine and clock out at five and go home and not think about work and, and be kind of held to, someone else you know like yeah. leadership or executive team trying to make my company successful i want to i want to have the reins i want to be in the driver's seat i want to be the one that that chases everything down so it's a good it's a good spot to be in i wouldn't have it any different but it does come with a lot of work yeah that, i'd agree with that because i've had this page i basically started it wasn't the white tail bloodline when i started it had a different name in 2020 i came up with the white tail bloodline and uh, decide I want to get some more guys, like-minded guys, to try to produce more content. And uh, I kind of slacked off, like you were saying. I've always been a diehard white tail hunter my whole life and uh, do a lot of work on my personal family farm, doing food plots and all that. But this year, I was like, I want to get on some big bucks. And this property, every once in a while, you get some stragglers that come through, but it's a real high-pressured area. So to get those bucks mature, it's pretty rare. So instead yeah. of uh, just sitting there like, hey, I'm not going to get a giant buck, I went out and we're hitting public land real hard this year. And then next year, uh, we're going to start doing door knocking like you do. And that's kind of what I want to talk about on this podcast episode is uh, just like you finding land and stuff. Because I know in the past couple of years, I, I believe it was last year, you had some struggles with some of your like shooter bucks getting shot by neighbors and stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. you had to bounce back. And I remember watching one of your videos and at the very end, you're just like not really fed up, but a little fed up with it. And you're like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to put more work in this year and try to find a new property and stuff. And uh, I just noticed you guys just posted a new video, so it looked like you, you got a new property, right? Yeah, I've got a couple new properties to hunt this year, which I'm excited about. And, like, to your point, it's it's funny. Hunting in general is just like what we were talking about with our jobs, right? You can, you can put in a lot of extra effort and be rewarded for that. And, you know, that's that's a life thing. That's a, you know, yep. it's, it's rather than complain about something or – you know, feel sorry for yourself, go out and change it. And, you know, with regards to hunting, it's, it's the same thing. You, even if you have the land, it's not necessarily always a finding new land thing, but if you put more time into the land you have, you can be rewarded at a higher level. Um, but for me, yeah, just finding new ground, I think spreading out is, is big for me. It's, it's important for me from the standpoint of, you know, I put a lot of content out there in the public eye and to, to most viewers, matter i mean most viewers are so far away but there is you know locals that follow that content and make decisions off that content and hunt off that content and all that type of stuff so the more i can spread out the more and, and it's not just about me to kill the deer 
it's I enjoy being able to develop a storyline. I don't want to you know hide anything from the viewers from the standpoint of um, hiding it from neighbors or something like that. Like I, I want to be able yeah. to spread out. I want to be able to tell the full story. That's one thing in this industry that I've always said in my mind does not get old is the, the stories. Um, you guys know how saturated this this industry is on the video side, on the podcast side, et cetera. But you know, I think on both videos and podcasts, if you can be a good storyteller, you're always going to have a place. You're always going to have people watching, um, going to have you know loyal followers, all that type of stuff. So I just want to make sure that the stories don't take a hit, um, just because everyone knows where I'm hunting and I, you know, I pay for that, sharing that information in the public eye. So the more properties I can get, the better. Just in general, from a hunting perspective, um, you can spread, cast a wide net, find the, shooter, the shooters you want to go after, and the wider your net is, the more properties you're going to have. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I can't ever have enough property to hunt for the, the fact that it takes a hit on your on your wallet when you're buying for That's for sure. That's like, a, kind of like here in Kansas, you know, I'm spread out pretty far, and you know, if you don't like one area or you don't like what's showing up, you know, it's like you're saying, cast that net out there and see maybe what's, you know, 15 miles down the road or something, you know, the more area you cover, the better your odds are going to be, you know, finding a giant. That's for sure. Yeah. And you, you guys know, I mean, the properties have up and down here. So if you have all your eggs in one basket or, you know, a couple and those properties are down that year for whatever reason, I mean, you're kind of out of luck but if you're spread out and have a number of different properties fall back on some properties are going to be up some years have good deer to chase others are going to be down and so that's another reason to to have enough options that you're never going to have it necessarily a quote-unquote down year right yep i'm say yeah our that's how our properties are they stay semi-consistent but we got this new farm property this is year three hunting it and we're finally starting to get it figured out figured out where they're Exact, pretty much exactly where the bucks are bed and we know where the does are bedding and uh, it just took about three years to get this property figured out i mean we've been running trail cameras hunting it but it's uh it's farmland with a lot of ridges so these deer and i mean pretty steep ridges so they're hard to get on and we're yeah. excited going this year because we've we've had the mo most shooter bucks we've ever had like we're going this year having three or four bucks we'd shoot and it's been a long long time since we've had that so we're excited about that and I noticed one thing about watching all your videos, you've never really had a property that was solely yours. You always had somebody else hunting it with you. And that new property, uh, I think you leased it, if I'm correct. And you have all the rights to it, correct? Correct. Yeah, I have uh, actually two properties. So you, you're correct in that all my years of hunting, I've never had exclusive access to a property. It's always been with other people but this year i actually have two that i have exclusive access and it's not always a negative thing sharing property with people um you know you can have more hands helping get work done or you know more ideas to bounce off each other etc but i also really like the idea of exclusive access from the fact of just controlling what goes on on the property controlling the pressure that type of stuff so I, i'm i'm excited for something new this year and and that i'll have at least two properties that uh if i'm not there i know the deer aren't getting pressured um and you know i kind of choose what gets shot what doesn't get shot at least within the confines of that property neither property is very big so the deer gets still going to travel a lot but um, being able to control 
you know, the, the type of projects I get done on the property and, and the hunting and all that will be kind of a fun uh, change of pace for me. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about like what you do in Midwest Whitetail is how you do your videos. Like when you just got that property and you did basically like your uh, first walk on the property, I believe. And you just showing what you're going through. Then you show when you get these bucks on trail camera. It's like exactly what you're doing. Like you were saying earlier, a lot of these dudes are just basically showing killing videos and not showing what they're doing to kill these bucks. And I think that's what puts you guys apart from a lot of these other bigger names in the industry. Right. And I think the key too is um, I've always been a big proponent of, of learning along with somebody. So not necessarily having an expert tell me like, this is how you do this or this is how you do it, but watching someone go through an entire process and learning through either their success or their failure. And that's what we really try to uh, portray is just that, that real, real life hunting experience that anyone watching it can learn from. And if we don't share all those details, share the walk through the property, share what we do to improve it, share, you know, things we try, whether they're experiments or whatever, I mean, people can't learn from if we don't show that type of stuff. So uh, I do feel like that's something that I've heard a lot from middle white tail viewers. Um, and we appreciate people that are willing to watch even the hunts that are slow or some of the stuff that's maybe not as exciting as a kill. Um, but I appreciate the, the loyalty of, of our viewers in that aspect. And I, I think that's kind of what makes most of our following a little bit unique is they, they eat that type of stuff up and that, that fits really well with our formula. Like one thing I've noticed, like you guys show those mistakes and if a buck busts or something, but from my experiences, that teaches you almost more than killing that buck when, when they, they catch you. Cause one of my favorite videos that you've ever done is, uh, that Diablo buck. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was last year, wasn't it, when uh, you were messing around with the and he ended up actually getting shot by the neighbor? Was that last year or the year before? Uh, last year was Diablo, yeah. He got shot by a, a gun hunter that was that came and hunted that property. It wasn't by a neighbor. It was by a guy on the property. Oh, okay. But, yeah, it's <clears> – <throat> I agree with you in, in learning from the failures way more than – when you're successful and again that's that's also a life thing i'm a big believer in that this is you you got to struggle to be able to learn learn something from it and and be better the next time around and hunting that's that's so true and that's what i love about chasing individual bucks is like you know you may succeed on one but the next one is a completely different animal completely different personality um all that type of stuff so it's it, there's a good chance even if you are successful a decent amount you're gonna fail again um and that's that's what i love that's what makes me keep coming back um to doing this yeah i thought it was like the video when you're like sneaking in i can't remember who you're hunting with but you're carrying your decoy back there and i think you were gonna hunt on the ground going after that buck and then you ended up getting caught before you got there and all them deer were in the field and that yeah. footage you got of that buck man that was wicked yeah that was that was a cool hunt i it's just crazy how some of that stuff plays out it's like you know timing is everything it's it's a game of inches like if we were there i don't know 10 minutes earlier would we have gotten to the spot that i wanted to be at and had a shot you know you never know it's just so everything is so close to going one way or another and you know last year was just one of those years that didn't didn't fall my way but um I always tell people that if I don't ever kill a big buck, 
again in my life, I'm okay as long as I have them to chase. Yeah, I just want I just want to be able to chase them every year, even if I don't kill them. So, uh, I'll, I'm okay with the way last year played out from that standpoint. That's that's a great way to put it, man. That it's not always about coming out successful um, with the hunt. It's about the hunt itself. Right. You know, these days, I think that gets misconstrued a lot of. Well, oh, you didn't kill a deer this year? No, but, you know, that's that's fine. Oh, well, you know, I kill whatever. You know, it's it's not about that. And I think that's getting lost these days with with a lot of hunters is that that's all it's about, you know. Oh, well, I bought the, you know, I buy the new Matthews bow every year or this, that, or the other. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it's really hard. I'm trying to instill that in my children is that it's not always about always succeeding every year um they've been pretty lucky the last few years you know they usually get their buck every year but you know there's a lot of years in there i remember of not killing a deer and you know when you think it's easy it's not it's <laughs> you know i can't wait for one of these years while well, my oldest son you know he had a pretty good grind last year you know he didn't get it done till uh late november you know and he was kind of starting getting frustrated and i said now this everything happens for a reason whether you do get one this fall or not, but that, that doesn't matter. You right. have to think about the work that you've put into it. And maybe next year, maybe even the year after that, you could kill, you know, a giant and it'll, all, then you'll think it was all worth it. All of the hardships, all of the work you put into it was all worth it at that moment. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think anyone with a voice, you guys with a, you know, a podcast platform needs to preach that because those that, that uh demographic you just referred to with your kids th those are the people kids people new into hunting trying to get into this um those are the people that are be negatively impacted by people making it all about killing and you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of negative stuff in this industry there's no doubt about it um so anytime you have the chance to kind of promote that aspect of it that it's not about the kill it's not about the attention that you get from killing a big deer it's about enjoying what hunting is uh figuring out what it means to you and enjoying that process because we're going to turn a lot of people away from our sport if uh if only the other side gets gets through to them you know the, the fact that only only people that kill giant deer and on social media and Stuff. They're the only ones that can be successful, and uh, we're going to turn a lot of people away from this. So, yeah, I mean, definitely preach that. I couldn't agree more. I, yep. you know, I think 100% it's, uh, you know, I'm seeing it even in our hunter safety courses that I remember as a kid where, you know, there was a hunter safety course shoot every month or so, you know. And now it's like I'm trying to get my kids into hunter safety even. And it's like there's one class in the whole state for the whole year. So I'm kind of thinking in my mind, is that how fast the sport's dying off? Like there's there's that many children that are not into hunting anymore. And I think we really need to change that because, you know, when I was a kid, everybody hunted, you know. In my high school, literally opening week, or opening week of rifle season, like the school day was shut down. Because they knew everybody was going to be gone, so yeah. you just don't see that anymore. Like I, I pulled out my, uh, I think Blake would have been eight at the time. I dropped him off at school, was going to work, and spotted a big, really big buck that he ended up killing uh, with a doe. So I drove around, went and got my kid out of school, and they were like, "Oh, where are you taking him?" I'm like, 
he he's got a doctor's appointment I forgot about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I told him about a school. We, we went and shot that, you know, shot that deer or whatever. But, you know, I just, that was me as a kid too. You know, my kids would, or my parents would call in and say, well, he's sick today because he's got a fever. They just didn't say it was buck fever. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it falls on us. It really does. That responsibility falls on us. And I, I do think there's, there's a small percentage of just, it's just, you know, more kids these days choose to do other activities and hunting. But I also think a bigger, bigger percentage is the fact that there's kids out there that just have not been exposed to it. They haven't had the opportunity. You know, parents are busier than ever. Um, it just, there's just so much more competing for everybody's time, not just the kids' time, but the parents' times. And, you know, even if you can reach out and take someone else's kid hunting or something like that. Just give them that one exposure because, um, I mean, you guys know if, if, if no one exposed us to it, who knows what we would enjoy doing these days. Someone's got to expose us to it. Um, and, and most likely if you get to experience anything like what we do and we love about hunting, you know, they're going to be hooked. Um, so they just need to be exposed to it. And that, that responsibility falls on us. It's our kids, someone else's kids, whatever we need to, be more proactive and and finding that and that, that's definitely a goal of mine I've been talking to buddies about uh, what more we can do with regards to camps or you know other opportunities like that that we can get some of these kids that have parents that aren't into hunting or don't have time um, get them out in the woods and yeah increase that participation number. i agree 100 percent Yep. And like you were talking about earlier, I think some people just need to take a step back and uh, realize why we're doing it. You need to go back to your old 8, 10, 12-year-old self when you started hunting and what the reasons you were doing it for then, then compared to now. Because you get wrapped up in these big bucks and a lot of people do some, some things they wouldn't have for these big bucks. But if you take a little step back and you just remember your roots, why you're doing it, who taught you what you're doing, and uh, I think that would help too. Yeah, I agree. Oh, to add to that, I think hunting for you, you know, for the reason you like to hunt is the exactly. most exactly because you can evolve as a hunter. You can evolve from what you the reasons you hunted for as a kid, and now you've progressed to where you want to target a certain age class or whatever it is. That's that's fine. Or you want to challenge yourself on public land, that's all fine. But hunt the way you want to hunt and hunt for yourself. Don't hunt to post it on social media don't don't make your decisions based on what all your peers are going to think like hunt for you hunt for the reasons you want to hunt um i think that's a big part of what people need to focus on yep 100 i think at the time because you guys are a little older than me but i remember when i was young man if you shot anything everybody was fired up for you rarely never got no hate no there wasn't social media like there is today but it was just a different camaraderie in the whole like in the hunting game you could say you know yeah 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 and, and even that i would say like who cares what anyone else thinks that's exactly that's whether it's social media or not i mean most likely everyone has their smaller closer local circle of guys that they're going to celebrate with and have that camaraderie with but beyond that i mean who cares like as long as you're doing it the right way you're hunting the way you want to hunt whether it's for meat or whether it's for you know, the challenge of it, whatever it is, I mean, hunt for you. And that's, that's the biggest thing. If everyone did that and wasn't so worried about, you know, doing it for attention or fame or whatever it is, some of those negative things that drive people these days, 
I think the industry would be in a lot better spot. Yep, I, I agree with that 100%. <clears throat> John, you got anything uh, you'd like to ask real quick? Well, yeah, Jared, talking about these new properties and stuff, I really want to kind of pick your brain about when you're looking at a new property or or whatever, um, what are you looking for in that property as far as, say, the layout of the property, how many acres, um, access, and that kind of thing? Well, I guess the, the first way I'd answer that question is a lot of times I'm going to take what I'm given with regards to the property, just because you guys know there's not that there's not an overabundance of available properties that you can kind of pick and choose what you want. So well, if I get access to a property, it's kind of the other way around. Like, okay, I got the property now figuring out what I have to work with. Um, but, it, you know, like most guys, I, I start with, with maps, but I'm a big boots on the ground guy. I spend a lot of time on a property and right or wrong, I spend a ton of time walking the property even this time of year. And when we're starting to get closer to season, I should probably start backing out a little bit more, but these new properties, I don't feel like I know them well enough to just say, all right, I'm going to wait till hunting season. I want to spend a, as much time as possible, get all out of the way this time of year um, and cover as much ground, as many inches of that property as possible, because there's so many things you can pick up walking a property that you'll never see in a million years on a map. Yep. Um, whether it's just little things that redirect mo deer movement, um, just uh, areas that the deer like to travel based on destination, food sources, whatever it is, um, just get out there and spend time on a property. I think we've maybe as collectively as a group, we beat it into people's heads too much to like not overpressure a place and stay out. You're going to run a deer in the next county. And I think that's a little bit of a misperception. I think I think spend as much time on the property as possible outside of season um, to figure it out. And you're going to be a lot better position in a lot better position um, come opening day or you know November, whatever it is, um, if you've been to that spot before and know exactly what it looks like and know how a deer will use it. Um, so you know, to answer your question, when figuring out new pieces, I spent a lot of time on the property, figuring it out, um, learn as much as I can. I mean, I know there's a lot that you can't figure out until you actually start hunting and watching, you know, deer actually move throughout the property in different directions. Um, but I feel like I, I do create a little bit of advantage for myself, not just staying out of it uh, during the off season. Yeah. yeah, but I'm the same way. Like we just went and put a bunch of moss scrapes out and uh, there's still some part, it's a small property, it's like 60 acres, but uh, the first year we were there, we kind of had that mindset, oh, let's stay out. But this summer, we've been just scouting every single piece of this property, trying to figure out stuff. And it's it's kind of weird. You walk an extra 50 yards one way, notice another trail and different things like that. It's just I'm big boots on the ground. We've been doing all this public land, and people be giving me shit walking through there in the summer, sweating and everything. But you can learn a lot in the summer. Yeah, they might switch their, their fall ranges and all that, but you can still find major trails if you go back and – in the rut, you can find bedding areas because a lot of the time they won't change throughout the season. Different times right. of the year, yeah, they're going to bed in different spots. But I still believe in that. Like, get boots on the ground as much as you can and just figure out what you can with your own eyes. Because like you said, looking at it from a map just does not do it. Right. And for me, this time of year, like you mentioned, switching patterns, that's true. Like, I'm not trying to pattern a deer right now. I'm not trying to find a deer and pattern. I'm trying to learn the property. 
Yeah. So that way when, the, and, and that, I don't know how it is where you guys are at, but most of my properties, the deer that I'm rehunting this fall aren't on the properties right now. Um, yep. Uh, most of them will show up in, you know, September, even, even into early October. So I'm not worried about running those deer out. I'm, I'm worried about myself learning the property, getting that out of the way and being, you know, more prepared when I actually get tree stand time. One thing I, that I thought was interesting watching one of your later videos was uh, you're walking through that property and uh, you're talking about he's going to log it and in the next few years, maybe that later this year or whatever, and you like that. And I'm the same way, and I hear more people more times than not say cutovers and logging a property is the, the worst thing that can happen. I just want to kind of hear your perspective on why you like it. Yeah, I, I think there are there there can be situations that – it's not good. You know, if you get a yeah. log company, it comes in there more or less does a clear cut or they just absolutely make a mess um, of the property. That's one thing. But a lot of times, you know, you, they're doing select cuts, taking out certain over mature trees that are basically um, a big canopy of no undergrowth. So <clears throat> the property is really going to benefit any property is really going to benefit from taking those big mature trees out. And especially so you get like immediate benefit right away. If they're not taking the tree tops, tree tops provide instant food on the ground plus instant ground cover. Um, this property that you're referring to that lease property needs the ground cover so bad. It, it looks like a park in the fall. You can see all the way through it just because it's a bunch of mature trees. Well, take some of those out. You tops on the ground it's going to completely change that it's going to make the property hunt a lot better uh you're going to be able to get in and out a lot better without spooking deer all that type of stuff where deer are going to bed on it because there's more bedding cover on the ground um all those types of benefits are, are what i'm looking forward to unfortunately it sounds like they're not going to get to it this year so um just kind of have to hunt it as it is for now but there's no doubt uh, a select cut and taking some mature trees out is going to have a really good long-term, short-term and long-term benefit to how the deer use the property. Yeah. yeah. Yep. John, uh, I know you got some questions to ask him. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm just kind of curious on, you know, your scouting, of course, like you're saying, his boots on the ground and stuff. Um, and I got here, that's how you and I were talking back and forth. Um Western Kansas, you know, we're a lot of just long range scouting, you know, spotting scopes, stuff like that. I do put boots on the ground, um, yeah. but you use a spotting scope a lot um, just from the truck. I mean, heck, when you're looking at deer, you know, even over a mile away, um, yeah. you know, so that changes, changes. I just now bought a spotting scope this year. So that's kind of changing the game a little bit for me. Um as far as that getting able to able to see some of these bucks and see where they're coming from and not disturbing them, you know, by moving in too close or whatnot. Do you, uh, do you do a lot of that? Like as far as like your ag fields and stuff like that, when you're trying to actually find a buck and kind of hone in on him? Uh, definitely a lot less than you do. And, and the reason why is just because our, we just aren't in big open country like you, like we, you can watch, some soybean fields and stuff like that this time of year and more or less just get your eyes on some deer. Um, but you're not really going to be able to learn much about their movement patterns. You can't watch them for a long, from long enough distance or for a long enough distance like you'd be able to. So, yeah, it's just a, a different world 
here than it is there in terms of how open the country is. Most of the time, <clears throat> you're, you're only watching one, you know, one field, um, and then it's surrounded by timber or something, so you can't see any further. Um, but if you're your situation just a lot a lot different are you are you trying to like do you see a big change in their patterns if you're watching a deer come out from a patch of cover and feeding in the evenings is that pretty similar to what they're going to be doing early in the season too or do they completely change uh like areas if you are you watching a deer in one area and he'll be a few miles away uh come open yeah. day yeah they tend to See, here it really seems like as soon as they shed their velvet, it's like they'll do almost a total 180. Like, you might have them daylight coming in all the time. You've got him coming out of his bed. You know, every night he takes this waterway down the feed every night. And then as soon as he sheds that velvet, he just disappears. I've literally had bucks move four miles away. You know, it's like as soon as that velvet comes off, they just turn into a whole different critter. Yeah. Um, so that makes it really challenging. Um, I got lucky with a buck I killed last year. Um, he kind of actually stayed on his patterns, um, you know, which was kind of strange, <laughs> kind of strange because most of the time those big mature bucks, like I said, they'll, they'll do a total 180. Um, it's just, you know, kind of like we we're talking about, I think all of these bucks, they're kind of like people, they all have a different personality. Um, you can kind of use the, your general tactic or your strategy for all of them, but you're going to have to, you know, adjust on the fly. Yeah. You know, like I said, scouting a lot from a long distance and uh, really right. kind of him down, you know, and, and I'm learning from a lot of guys, um, you know, the more cameras that you run really almost the better off you are, especially if that deer does leave, you know, from right. where you think he is. Cause you know, once he sheds that velvet, he might just go totally nocturnal. You know, he's bedding in the Milo and he's not coming out till after dark. So your your cameras can really kind of tell you a lot as far as that aspect of it. Right, right. And for me, cameras this time of year, it's more just like almost for fun. Like I, I enjoy trying to get some big velvet deer on camera, but um, most of the deer on the properties I hunt don't show up until – at least later this month, later in August or in September. Um, and I know they'll be there then when it's time to hunt. So to me, I could, I could work harder to go try and find them now where they're at. Uh, they won't be anywhere that I can hunt, but I could potentially watch them from a distance just for fun. Um, but like I said, that is kind of for fun. It's a little bit of a piece of the puzzle trying to figure out where they summer. But at the end of the day, for my hunting situation, it doesn't, it doesn't make me any more likely to kill them. I know that they're, they move in at a certain time of year, every year. Um, and so anything during the summer is more or less just fun, like seeing what they look like this year, how they grew from last year, um, that type of stuff. It just, it just doesn't necessarily play into my hunting strategy this, uh, uh, this part of the summer. Gotcha. Yeah, the way you're talking, Jared, is kind of like I'm. We're in Southern Indiana, so I mean, we got lots and lots of small parcels. So yeah, you can go look for them in the soybean fields, but it's like like you said, it's not one of our major tools. One of our guys, Dylan, he just likes going out there and looking at them and uh, just watching them, getting pictures, like you're saying. But yeah, yeah, you can learn a little bit. But most of these bucks, they will shift. But out of all yeah. the properties I've hunted throughout the years, this farm, we call it the farm property. 
it's uh, a lot of these bucks will be there in the summer and more than half stay in that area, which obviously I think it's pretty rare. We got this one buck, we call him drop time, old buck. He's five or six. Uh, we've had three years of history with him. And that buck typically stays from going on year three, what we think he's staying within about 100 or 150 acres. And uh, ours is like 60 of it, but he's just smart and old as shit. We only had one or we've had two encounters where we've seen him. But uh, he was just smart coming in at last light, or I mean, he's just an old smart buck, so he's he's hard to kill. But I thought that was kind of weird that we have all these summer bucks, and then one of the biggest he he leaves all all season. He goes to his fall range, goes to the neighbors because they've sent us pictures of him. But other than that, they might go back and forth between these other properties, but one or two of them all stay on our property year round, which it's pretty rare, I I would think. Yeah, that's pretty cool though. I mean, yeah. it's it's cool learning that. It's cool just even the fact that you're able to know that information. And you know, part of it, I think, too, deer this time of year, at least here, their core areas are so small right now. Like they could literally live in in the in a waterway in the middle of a standing cornfield uh, for a long time this time of year, and just they don't really need to go anywhere. Food is abundant. Um, you know, there's basically no pressure for them. So they, they don't really move around a whole lot. And if, if you're not in the spot where they're at, they're kind of hard to find. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's pretty cool. It sounds like maybe that, that old, old buck that you're talking about might have a, a small core area all the time, not just this time of year. Yeah. That's what we're thinking, man. We, we thought he was roaming more, but this neighbor, they got like, there's there's basically two sides we're on these huge ridges and there's this lake that divides us and they got real real good property luckily they manage their whole family only shoots mature bucks so that helps us out that's why we get all these bucks to get more mature and we've just never lived in an area where a lot of the people were doing that stuff and yeah, yeah it, it's cool messing with this buck because dylan he's on the team he saw him he was hunting on the ground hunting this scrape and he got about 60 yards from him that was the closest we ever got and then early october he came out into the cornfield at last light at about 80 yards but yeah man his his home range is super small he's and like you were saying these uh core areas are so small this time like they'll come out to our little feed station sometimes three or four times in a day because their bed is so close yeah is that is that buck your top target this year yeah just because he's super old like dylan he's he's been my best friend for years and years since i moved to indiana and been trying to get him back into hunting finally got it and killed a good buck like the first year we were there on that property and then uh, he's been itching for this buck and we got another couple bucks that uh, he won't be able to pass but my my main goal is that drop time if he shoots one of the other bucks i'm probably gonna hold off and try to kill that buck just because it's for our area it's rare to shoot a drop time and he's just an old warrior and we have so much history videos sites of him and uh that's pretty rare like i shot a buck last year i had three years of history with and he was only like 120 inch deer because his left side was all just two points and he had to split brown stuff but that's he's not my biggest buck not even close but that's my favorite buck just because the history and yeah. uh, I just think that's like the coolest thing about having these properties and going after a p Pacific buck is the yeah. whole journey of it, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it's so cool to learn. I, I alluded alluded to it earlier, but it's so cool to learn the individual personalities of these deer. And that it's just, you would think a mature whitetail is a mature whitetail, but that's so far from the truth. They all act a little bit different and every chase is is unique and the longer the chase is the more rewarding it is at the end if you're able to able to catch up to them so that's pretty cool
Yep, and this that drop time buck I'm talking about, he's not a huge buck. He's probably 130s, 140s. He's just <clears throat> past three years we've had history with him. He's gained a drop time, and that's about it. He's maybe grown a little bit, but he's basically had that same uh, genetic eight point and for the past three years we've had him. But he's just he's a warrior, man. His ears all split in half, and even that's in awesome. the summer where they don't have a whole lot of testosterone, like any of those younger bucks, like when the three year old bucks are around him, he don't care as much. But when that one year old or that two year old walks up, he fucking racks his antlers at him every time kicks at him he's just like he's the dominant buck in that area so he stays in this area and he's just hard to kill but we're getting him figured out and i'm hoping this is the year man soybean year we've noticed are way better than corners i don't know if you've noticed that really yeah that's interesting i i don't i wouldn't say one is better than the other they're definitely different though the deer use these properties different based on where the corn and where the beans are they hit them different times of year all that type of stuff but it's uh the the movement patterns and directions are different i just wouldn't say one is better than the other in my experience yeah Yeah, i say just just on the yeah i've noticed that because on one property i have it's better on a corn year because i think it's just all the pressure so they can hide out a little more throughout the season until it gets cut and yeah. then late season's killer on my main property. Like you were talking about, this time of year, I don't even have cameras on my family property right now just because we don't get shooters until yeah. at, at least October. Like last year, we got so many persimmons blooming now. We've been letting those grow up. And uh, so we got like dozens and dozens of persimmons on this property. So the bucks are coming in earlier than they ever have just because this was last year was the first year they're blooming. Yeah. But, but like it is like everything's situational. You can give advice on something, but unless you're on that property and you you know what's going on and the pressure, there's just so much to go into it. I agree. I mean, you got to know like like the fact that you know a bean year is better than a corn year. Like that's that's something that you, it's your experience that teaches you that. I, I have buddies that you know have the same thing. Like uh, where I have hunted in Kentucky in the past, like it, his farm is completely different on a soybean year than it is anything else. Um, but that's, that's, that's one of the biggest things again, like when we talk about people hunting, you know, getting into hunting and, and figuring things out on their own, the deer and the properties are the best teachers there are. Like you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good hunters out there. There's people with good knowledge and stuff, but there in my mind there's nobody as good at teaching as the deer you're hunting exactly these people are are trying to become or be experts and teach and that's that's good and it can help get people a head start but their their experience is based off their deer the deer they hunt their properties and that doesn't always translate over to everyone else's hunting situation so let let the deer teach you how you guys is um you know even food sources here it's a total different ball game see so like right now we're uh you know we have feeders out and stuff we have bait sites out so we figure out where all these deer or what deer in the area and then here it is it doesn't matter what else is around it doesn't matter if there's a mile of field that's two miles away wherever you think you have a shooter buck at you know this is where he's at this is where he's showing up to that feed site now come september you have to hunt that deer wherever that milo field's at because every buck in the area is going to go to that milo field that's just over the years i figured that out that's how it works early season before that milo's cut you have to hone in on those milo fields or you are done you will you won't have a chance it's and it's crazy to think that 
But like Zeus, when I shot last year, you know, everybody's like, oh, where'd you shoot him? Well, he was just living in a Milo field. There's not a tree within two miles of the place. You know, he actually lived in that Milo field. And then you just had to uh, figure out where he's going to water. It's kind of the only way that you could even had a chance at him because the Milo was, you know, four or five foot tall. So you're not going to shoot that deer at the Milo. There's just no way he's too covered up. So I had to just figure out where he was going to water and just intercept him from his bed to his water. And that's, that's how you have to play it here for the most part. Interesting. So let me ask you this with regards, obviously that deer is bedding in the Milo, but <clears throat> with that being like a destination food source for the bucks that time of year, do a lot of bucks still bed off it like somewhere else or in a tree line or something and travel to that? Or do they pretty much bed right around the outside of that Milo? They relocate their bedding area to be close to that Milo field. They pretty much, you might get a couple that'll bed like off in the CRP or something, but they pretty much all bed in the Milo. Like that just becomes their home. Okay. And like I said, the only way, the only time they really ever come out of it is if it's really hot, maybe they'll go find a shade tree somewhere. But really the only time they want to come out is to get water. And that's it. And that's what makes it really kind of hard to, uh, to hunt them. You know, but if you can find that water source and you can get in between them, I mean, shoot, you you know, you, you're pretty much in the game then. Yeah, that's interesting. So that time of year, if your property doesn't have one of those Milo fields, you're you're kind of yeah. in trouble. Yeah, pretty much. You uh, you've got to go find. That's a, that's what's it. It's like it, early in the spring. Um, well, I work for a farmer, so I know where all of our Milo fields are going to be planted. But if I'm hunting a different property. I'm just pretty much watching that farmer and seeing what he's planting in there. And, uh, you know, if that that year he's not got anything planted in it that spring, he's waiting to that fall to, to plant wheat. I won't even look at that property again until um, late season, like, you know, late December, early January when the winter wheat's in there. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to hear. Cause I've, I've never hunted Kansas. I think I told you that, but it's, uh, it's interesting to hear just those different situations and, you know, same thing here in Iowa. We have different situations that dictate deer movement at time of year, especially the harvest of crops. Like when a, a freshly picked cornfield is about as hot as it gets in oh, yeah. October, um, a lot of deer will, will hit it for a few days and then move on to the next freshly picked uh, cornfield. Uh, so that we have, we have certain things like that too but it's it's always interesting to hear other places i haven't been haven't experienced just how how some of those things change and yeah. hate the deer movement yeah. jared i don't want to keep you too long but one of my favorite things just all around about white tail hunting is uh mock scrapes and just scrapes in general and uh i'm, I'm pretty sure you do them i'm fairly certain i've watched some of your videos you're doing that i just kind of want to get your take on it and like why you're doing them yeah i think mock scrapes to me are one of the best inventory tools and I should say scrapes in general. I mock scrapes uh, to me are just more or less, you know, the scrapes that you want to put in a certain spot. Um, And so mock scrapes are the best inventory tool that I know of here in Iowa. I mean, potentially bait would be better, but we don't, we can't bait in Iowa. And so, in my experience, it's just mock scrape. That's kind of how I find bucks back every year, you know, especially in September when they start moving back into their fall areas. Um, 
I've been, I usually start my mock scrapes somewhere usually towards the end of this month. We're in August right now. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe middle of this month. Um, I will, I especially want to start mock scrapes for the reason of, of wanting that to be the community scrape this fall. So like if I put a mock scrape in front of a stand or on a travel corridor that I'm hunting or, uh, you know, near a trail camera that I'm wanting to be a, a good, good trail cam spot. I, I like starting those a little bit before the deer start opening up their own scrapes, which is yeah. usually early September when that velvet starts coming off. So I try to be ahead of that time frame just a little bit so I can put some of those hot scrapes where I want them rather than letting the deer start the first ones, if that makes sense. Yep. That, that's how we do it. We went and put a bunch out and like, this kind of goes with what you're talking about walking your property. And we're on this, uh, ag field. It's beans this year. Like I was talking about, it's about a 30 acre or 40 acres, I believe bean field. And we ended up putting a scrape last year on the one corner. I mean, it got tore up shooter bucks in it during daylight, multiple shooters throughout the season. So we put one back there. They tore it down at the after season in the winter. And then we put one on the other corner, just a, a vine on a, a scrape tree where we saw him hitting off of a, a trail camera picture. One buck walked in front of him. And then in the background, we could see the buck hitting the lens. So we added one there. And then we went walking. And Dylan's like, yeah, man, I remember seeing a scrape over here last year. And it was like right in between those scrapes. And I looked down and this scrape was tore up. It was right in the, in the middle of those two scrapes, just on a major trail that comes out in those beans. But they've already been pawing that up like like it's end of october that's the first time i've seen that in a long long time yeah i usually i see deer work scrapes all times of year obviously but it's usually just a little bit of a light interaction with them with the licking branch yeah uh, not necessarily the ground scrape so yeah that, that's pretty interesting the other cool part about scrapes for me um i'm sure you guys see them but uh learning about the personality of a deer is is what i see come through in scrapes too you'll get you'll get certain bucks they'll come up and you know stand there for five minutes just tearing it up and uh, they'll visit it multiple times within you know a half hour mm -hmm. very dominant and you'll get other bucks they may be the oldest biggest buck on the farm but they are very timid when it comes to you know working on working on a scrape and you can usually see that in trophy pictures or if you run you can especially see it but i've, I've seen a connection in the way those deer act uh in hunting too like how aggressive are they how, how aggressive can you get with calling to them are they gonna even respond to calls you know the more aggressive the deer is um personality wise you've learned that through trail cameras the more aggressive you can be uh in calling him in my experience so yeah another cool thing about about scrapes and running cameras on scrapes yeah since we were talking about that drop time buck this was the first time this happened to me uh the dude i share the property with dylan he's got these reveals and he turned them on video which video teaches you so much like i'm yeah. even though it kills your battery i love having them on video and we get this drop time buck bedded down legit beds right in front of the the camera it's on this side of this ridge like real steep ridge we just figured they were bedding there it was a good trail so we put the camera on it and he beds right in front of it sits there for i don't know an hour two hours and then uh, we haven't looked into the data. We want to do this. We're going to look back into it. But he gets up out of nowhere, just moseys off, and then goes and beds down right in front of one of our other trail cameras about 10 or 15 minutes later. That was three or 400 yards away, which that was pre pretty awesome to get him actually seeing him get up and switching when the wind switched, which that's what I'm guessing had to have happened. Just 
where he switched to. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. He's he's playing with you guys, laying in front of you all your cameras. Dude, he is, man. He's sitting there itching himself. Got some crazy videos of him. But uh, <laughs> that's Jared, cool. I don't want to keep you too long. I just kind of want to hit you with a couple rapid-fire questions and see what, what you like best. And then uh, the last couple will be a smaller answer, if you can just give an answer with it, if you're down to do that. Absolutely. Let's do it. So do you blind call? Say that again, blind call? Yeah, do you ever blind call? I do, yeah, I, I do a decent amount of it, but it's it, I, I don't do it if I'm in a situation where it's easy for a buck to get downwind of me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, grunt or rattling? Um, if it's blind, I like rattling. If yep, it's uh, not blind, I like grunting or okay. snorting. Um, what's your all-time favorite food plot blend? Like, what, what style, I guess? Uh... Obviously, it changes during as far as the time of the year. But if I was to pick one, uh, that's just all around. I really like clover as a just kind of mm-hmm. all around nutritious food source. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite week to hunt? If you only had one week to hunt this year, what week are you picking? Uh, third week of November. Yep. Hey, that's right there with me. We had our, our buddies. He's gonna, he's taking off rutcation. He's asking everybody. John had his opinion, and a couple of us love that. We love that second and third week because in Indiana, our gun season comes in the third week of uh, November. So I always love that last week or that week, honestly, the week of opening day of gun season. Yeah, I love that third week of, of November. Um, and I'd say uh, my 1B answer to that question would be the last week of October. Okay. Yep. I'm right there with you on that. And uh, this one, you can, you don't have to say a whole lot about it, but maybe just a, a little brief. What's your all time favorite buck? I know you've got a lot of them, man. You've been getting on them over the years. Oh, that one's tough. Uh, yeah, that, that one's tough. I think, uh, I think for the purpose of giving an answer, I'll probably say the big 10 that I killed a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, ground just because of how how much i had to kind of adapt to the the property and the way the de- way he specifically used it he was one of those timid kind of uncallable deer and lived in basically a bunch of warm season grasses with no trees um so just for that fact and having to adapt and how how the hunt with ghillie suit played out uh, yeah i was about to ask bro i just watched that video yesterday that, <laughs> that was, was fucking insane yeah. yeah that one will be hard to be so I'll, I'll say i'll say that one for the purpose of giving an answer but I, I mean truthfully i don't necessarily have one that sticks out above the others yeah. all, all the memories are are pretty cool and, and unique in their own way i say you, you're a different breed man you put in all this work and you usually have a lot of history with them so definitely harder for you to pick than the average guy i'd say yeah and uh since we're heading into the last two months for most people, one month, depending where you're at, like we're going to be hunting Kentucky on September 3rd. So that that's one month away from now. What's just one little easy tip for somebody going into this season that you could give them? Um, I would say, well, one, enjoy it and have fun and hunt for hunt for yourself like we talked about earlier. But, but as far as a specific hunting one, I would say – don't be afraid to be aggressive. Um, I think 
sometimes we are a little bit slow in making adjustments when we need it and we kind of try to let luck play a bigger factor than it needs to, you know, go sit the same stand or same stands and eventually hope he's going to walk by. I would say my advice would be aggressive. Sometimes that window of opportunity during a fall or during, you know, your rutcation or whatever it is, it's so small. It might be two days. Yeah. Um, so be aggressive rather than, relying on luck or just hoping that he's going to walk by if you have some trail cam intel or a sighting intel from a previous hunt um, be aggressive find a way to maybe adjust that stand location or whatever i mean i think we i think we get a little bit too cautious sometimes we're afraid to afraid to spook him and ruin the rest of our season when in all reality you're not likely to do that first of all but second of all if you don't make a move you're likely to miss your window opportunity when he's on a certain pattern yep i love that advice man that's that's kind of how i'm going into it because the past year or two i've been maybe being a little too timid i mean i still go dive in if the trail camera pictures are right or all that but yeah sometimes man i think you just need to go for a hell mary and just go after it because you probably didn't think that was going to actually work. Then you crawled in that big old bush in some ice in a ghillie suit with a cameraman and have that buck walk that close. Oh, I never thought I'd work in a million years. But I... <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, that, that's a memory that'll last forever, man. That was awesome. But, uh, John, you have any last thoughts before we get off here, man? Yeah, just kind of going back to that, Jared saying being aggressive. I think, uh, a lot of guys almost fail or, kind of trip over their own feet by overthinking some things, you know, like you're saying, kind of being held back. Oh, I don't want the deer. Um, I think a lot of times it comes down to overthinking and kind of psyching yourself out. And I think a lot of times that's why you, you fail. I know I've done it, you know? Um, so that's kind of what I think of that. Yeah. And of course it depends on your hunting situation. So maybe you're on a tiny little property and you can't afford to bump him even one time because he's, he's going to be on the neighbors at that point, but you still got to take your chances. I mean, it's, you, you can miss your window, like I said, and you just need to need to at least take a shot. Otherwise you, you, a lot of times I think guys don't realize that they even miss any opportunities because they just sat back and they just, assumed he assumed that uh, it just didn't happen but uh there's there's more that we can do it, it, if it's in our hands to be a little more aggressive kind of a crazy story for you here jared i uh uh killed a pretty nice buck back in 2020 and uh this deer was really weird um had pictures of him in july and he just kind of disappeared and uh jared i gotta interrupt real quick john's modest he's killed two 200 inch bucks in the past two years that's impressive <laughs> that is <laughs> He will not ever say and he will never bring it up on a podcast, so I got to do it for him. No, I'm glad he did. That's that's impressive. Yeah, he's going so, for uh, number three this year. He's going for a three-peat. Fingers crossed, you know. We'll you, got a, you got a prospect already? I do. Um, so I killed Titan, a named Titan, back in 2020. He was 11. And then Zeus that I killed this last fall was 229. And – the one that I deemed Apollo this year, um, I think he's going to be right there too. Uh, I, did, I did see him, what was that, Gavin, a month and a half ago where I was guessing he was at that 190s, 200-inch mark then. Yeah, he was, wasn't was growing a whole lot. You could see him from the picture from a few hundred yards away. He was a stud. Yeah. So 
I don't really have any pictures of that deer yet. I've seen them a couple times on the hoof, but, you know, let's kind of see how it plays out. I'm just going to, you know, use a spotting scope a lot on that deer and just kind of scout from a distance for now. Um, try to figure out any patterns. I really don't have one yet. Well, we'll kind of see where that goes. Like I said, fingers crossed, but, you know, lightning struck twice and, once so i don't know if i'll strike you know the same place three times but we'll see <laughs> oh man that's awesome hope you get it done that's uh that'll put you in some rare company for sure that's that's a impressive class of deer to be killing multiple times like that yeah and john's just so humble man he's never once brought it up i'm always the one that has to tell people he's a he always does he always does <laughs> yeah no i'm glad you did but i, I also uh, appreciate the the humility too. I think that that says a lot about you. Yeah, hundred percent. Sorry to interrupt, John. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so that that buck back in twenty twenty, like I said, he disappeared, and then uh, he showed back up. But he was only nocturnal. You know, he was only coming in at night, and he's actually at what we call. So this is a weird situation. We farm this property, and I can't actually hunt the draw, the trees. We don't actually have rights to that, but we have rights on the farm ground, right? So there's one single cottonwood tree out in the middle of the stinking field. I call it the stupid tree because it is just one stupid tree in a field. So I got everything set up there. Um, I had no idea the deer was even around. Um, Just got pictures of him, like I said, in July over a bait pile and disappeared. Well, then he finally showed back up after he shed his velvet, but this was uh, late September. And he's strictly nocturnal, and then we went in there to to disc the field, and then he showed up daylight that night, and he did it for three nights in a row. Then he went back to just being nocturnal. Okay, whatever. Then we went in there and sprayed it with the big sprayer, and he did the same thing. Three nights, daylight, back nocturnal. I was like, okay, something's kind of something's happening here with this deer machinery. Yeah. And planted the weed into it, boom, once again. Daylight three nights in a row. I said, okay, I got this figured out. So we were we were actually in the middle of harvest and uh told my bosses, I said, Man, I got this deer figured out. I the wind's right. I can go in there tomorrow and I can get him killed. I'm I think I've got him down. Okay, cool. We'll let you off early that day. So that morning before the hunt, I drove out into the field. Dump some corn out of the bait pile uh, with my pickup. And then I literally just was out there spinning kitties in my pickup, revving it up, making all kinds of noise and everything. <laughs> and uh, that night I ended up killing that deer because he ended up coming to that bait pile then in daylight. That's wild, man. So I, like you say, that all these deer have a different personality. You know, I would have never thought in my life that a deer would have done that, but I don't know why, but. This is what he did. <laughs> yeah, especially that caliber of deer. That's that's crazy. I mean, that's that's a pretty cool, unique story to have on that deer, though. Yeah, because yeah. we were guessing that year he was a six and a half year old buck. Man, that is crazy. That's pretty cool. Hell yeah! But Jared, man, I think we've taken enough of your time. We we truly appreciate this. Uh, there's a lot of guys in the industry that I like to watch and appreciate what they're doing but there's not too many guys i actually look up to and look to for a whole whole lot of advice i mean i'm always looking for advice don't get me wrong but you're definitely one of those guys love what you're doing love the way you're doing it and uh, just like i like the way you carry yourself you seem like a humble real nice dude so we truly appreciate you taking the time and uh this is a podcast we'll, we'll remember forever brother i appreciate you 
Man, I, I appreciate it, guys. It's it's humbling to hear that and uh, reach out anytime. I, I enjoyed this. I'd be happy to do it anytime you guys want and wish you guys the best of luck this season. Definitely keep me posted on how you guys do. For yes, sure. Sir. Yeah, I'm saying we'll, we'll keep posting on you. Just keep doing what you're doing, brother. Sounds good, fellas. I appreciate it. Have a good rest of the night. You too. You Thank too, you, Jared. Thanks, guys.